As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. Uh, hey, Tracy, how's it going? Pretty good. <laughs> I get kind of nervous when you ask me stuff like that. Oh, you know, I just thought, you know, it's been a while. I wasn't on last week, so I wanted to uh, catch up. That's true. That's true. You were away. You missed uh, Matt Levine and Space Robots, so I'm sorry. A little worried um, that he did better than me. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm dry. I haven't listened to that yet because I don't want to see if he's better than me. You have to step it up today. So space robots. So technology is pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it's impressive, and uh, it seems to make a lot of people a uh, potentially lot of money. So speaking of technology and making a lot of money, you know another cool thing you can do with technology is. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this is a trick. Go on. You can, uh, you can catch up with old friends that you haven't seen in 20 years on Facebook. No way. And actually, our guest today is someone who I don't think I've seen probably in like 22 or 23 years. He's an old uh, middle school friend of mine uh, from when I lived in uh, Joliet, Illinois, who, uh, which is uh, kind of a suburb of Chicago. Is is this what Odd Lots has been reduced to? You're just bringing on your, your school friends? It is, but there's also, it is. So part of it is just an excuse to catch <laughs> up with an old friend. But we're also going to be talking about, uh, there's also a relevant angle related to technology because uh, our guest is a historian of technology uh, hmm. at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. And he recently gave a great speech called The Innovation Fetish which is about why it's so bad that we're obsessed with words like disruption and innovation and why it's so perverse that we can't uh, stop talking in this sort of uh, nonsense language that we've all constructed and come to accept. So those are words that we see on almost every uh, technology press release that comes our way, right? We, we read them and uh, see them unquestionably. Like No one ever talks about why are we talking about innovation so much? Mm. And is are we really getting anywhere 
uh, by hammering home the importance of innovation and disruption and entrepreneurship and all these things that we've just sort of taken for granted are good. And maybe uh, there is a dark side to our endless uh, focus on this language of technology. Ooh, I like this. I like where this is going. All right, you, you might be forgiven for bringing your friends on. <laughs> my, my intro wasn't totally contrived. So with us is uh, Lee Vinsel. He's a professor, as I mentioned, at the Stevens Institute of Technology. Lee, uh, it's great to see you, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, so your talk, uh, The Innovation Fetish, and your work focused on uh, all, these, all these buzzwords that we just mentioned. So... Tell us about your work and why is it important to focus on the language, uh, focus on these words? Right. So I'm a historian of technology. Uh, my first book I just wrote is on the history of auto regulation in the United nice. States. But for this project, what I've been looking at is tracking word usage over time. And one surprising fact you find is that the term technological innovation only comes into use in about the 1960s, which ironically, if you read e economists and economic historians like Robert Gordon, is about the time that really deep and meaningful technological innovation, revolutionary innovation, kind of came to an end <laughs> in the United States, right? Uh, because we kind of hit the skids in 1970. And since then, with a couple of brief exceptions, we have not gotten back to really deep innovation and really meaningful economic growth. Immediately. So that's very interesting. And I want to talk about that. But the first response that I think most people think is, is like, how can you say that we haven't seen much innovation since the 60s and 70s? I mean, our world is wildly different largely thanks to information technology, computers and phones and the internet and mm -hmm. all this. So this seems to be a contestable point right off the bat, that that was actually the high watermark for uh, innovation as opposed to what many people would see is the the very, the founding era of digital should, exactly. technologies and the internet and all these things. Right. So how do you back up that claim that that was sort of the peak? Right. I mean, I think that the argument uh, Gordon would make is that we see a period from about 94 to 2004 where businesses are adopting email and different Internet technologies. And we see that in the economic growth numbers. But we just don't for all of the hype about innovation and disruption, all of these things, we actually don't see that in our economic growth. So in the 1960s, did people suddenly start talking about technological innovation, or was it a gradual change, or how did it come about and why? So the way it happened was that economists, especially Robert Solo, by the late 1950s, they, they sort of had very good economic statistics, and they, they were realizing that traditional explanations like changes in capital and uh, labor just weren't explaining the economic growth. So then they hypothesized that that hidden thing was technological change. So then um, amongst e economists and economic historians in the 60s and 70s, you see in policymakers too, you see more and more focus on innovation as something that we should try to foster and encourage. So what's wrong with that? Because intuitively, it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with policies that uh, promote science and promote the application of science mm -hmm. to business models um, and the promotion of technologies that will make us more efficient. So what is the downside to 
this rhetoric? I think there's two major downsides. The first is that it's not clear that these policies or changes in our institutions are actually getting us that innovation, right? So we can talk about it a lot, but is it actually producing it? And the second part is that this focus on innovation often leads us to just ignore fundamentals Mm. like infrastructure and ordinary labor, because even in a very innovative society, most people's labor is going into things like just keeping the world going. So is the implication here that because technological innovation sounds like a a sexier kind of topic, that that's why people tend to focus on it more when it comes to economic growth? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of it. It taps into a much longer history, which is a kind of fetish around invention. There's cults of invention going all the way back to Edison and Tesla and people like this. But since 1970 or 1980, there really has been this kind of constant focus on the sexy topic of innovation to the neglect of many other basic fundamental issues, even basic technological issues. Is innovation good? And should let's say there were a better way to achieve innovation besides talking about innovation. Mm -hmm. In your view, is that worth pursuing? Is the issue... Like what I'm trying to get at is the issue with the language itself counterproductive or is there something more fundamental? Could we achieve, have higher rates of productivity and innovation by thinking about it in some different way? Right. I think that there are smarter ways to do innovation policy. And I think that in general, innovation is often good. So if we can find those ways to do those things, we should. But the second part, then, is that there's a lot of things that we neglect when we just focus on innovation. And why is it zero sum? So walk us through how policymakers, you know, every state wants to be have its own Silicon Valley. It's Mm -hmm. sort of incubator programs for new startups. But why does that have to be zero sum? Why does the focus on all these things necessarily detract from the labor of most people? Would you say maintain, maintain the infrastructure, build the infrastructure? Why does it have to be uh, one or the other? Let me give you an example. So Senator uh, Sam Brownback in Kansas followed traditional conservative economic thinking in cutting taxes for the wealthy um, in an attempt to induce innovation in the state. Now, maybe we've seen some job growth and innovation, but what he's ended up doing is cutting the tax base. And for that reason, he's had to continually tip, uh, go into the transportation fund, which means that kind of Kansas roads are falling apart. That would be one example. Doesn't this just speak um, to the fact that technology is often something that's about, you know, a a series of small discoveries, and then maybe, maybe you hit a jackpot that's something really revolutionary in terms of technology. I mean, by pursuing technological innovation, everyone is essentially going after that jackpot, right? And naturally, if they don't get the jackpot, then it might look like they've lost out. Um, That sounds good to me. I'm not sure how that's a counterexample to what I'm trying to say. Is it essentially, if I'm, you know, if I'm understanding the question, is it basically that if everyone is sort of pursuing technological innovation in its own right and everyone mm-hmm. wants to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Steve Jobs or the next whoever, 
then that guarantees that a lot of people are just going to be major losers <laughs> and a lot of people are going to have okay. spent a lot of money in human endeavor endeavor that gets us nowhere. Right, but one person is going to get the big payout, right? Like one person is going to invent the new Facebook. That's the problem. Right. That's that's part of the problem. And the other thing is I, I think if we look at education, for instance, engineering education at the college level, it often focuses on innovation. So it's making students think, to be a good person or a great person, you have to be an innovator. And yet about 80% of engineering labor just goes into maintenance and upkeep, like just totally ordinary stuff. And yes, to take care of technological systems, introducing new things that introduce new efficiencies is important. We know that. But there is a more kind of fundamental and basic way of thinking about things, which is caring for things, and yes, new things will be a part of that overall process. So is this inevitable? I mean, in your view, this was a choice. This is a value judgment that society has put on innovation, creating something new versus maintaining something new and taking pride in keeping the infrastructure of society, whether it's sort of physical infrastructure or technological infrastructure, working for people. In your view, this is a value choice that people have made. That's right. Yeah, I'm not sure that they made it intentionally. Sure. I think these kind of terms, especially very faddish terms, kind of seduce us, right? Because they seem nifty. And especially when people are telling you that innovation is how we get all these good things, both increases in quality of life and economic growth, it's very natural to kind of go after that thing. Uh, I want to take a quick word for a sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Okay, and we're back with Lee Vinsel. He's a professor of technological history at the Stevens Institute of Technology. And we are talking about the innovation fetish and the counterproductivity of our obsession with words like uh, well, innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, disruption. Something that I'm really interested in that I think maybe you can speak to is, you know, we've decided as a culture and as a society that People who build a social network and become a billionaire a few years later are lauded to the moon. They're on the cover of magazines, and everyone is told they have to hustle, and everyone is told to you know, go out and be the CEO of their own, their own brand. Yeah. What, what does that do for – like who wants to become a teacher in this culture? In a culture that rewards sort of going out and scoring big so fast – who who would ever want to have like sort of like a simple profession like teaching school children? Teaching children. Yeah. I, I, it seems the, quaint, but it has right. to be done. On the subway ride over here, I actually saw an ad for people becoming teachers. And one of the taglines was that you could encourage children to be innovators. Right. <laughs> so even even to get people into teacher jobs, the only way you can do it is through innovation. I saw I also saw a. Uh, Someone writing, running for the local school board in Maplewood, New Jersey, where I live, has the word, their name, and it says creativity and innovation, right? So it's like the only point of our education system has to be innovation at this point. <laughs> so what's the solution to this problem? Because like the obvious one, I guess, is um, 
for governments or policymakers to uh, put out some sort of um, disincentive program and say, we're not going to talk about innovation anymore. We want to quash all the innovation, which uh, sounds like a PR nightmare, right? And I can't I would not do that. (laughs) Yeah. So what would you do? All right. There's, this is kind of tough. I, on one level, what we're trying to do is engender a conversation about this stuff. And what we find is just as innovation appeals kind of on both sides of the aisle to both political parties, we also see this maintenance discussion appeal to both political parties. So after we had this conference at Stevens Institute of Technology, it got covered by the American Conservative online magazine. So, I mean, one of the things is trying to just create a conversation about that. But my co-author and I, Andy Russell, we're kind of classic progressives, right? So our answer would be to put more funding into infrastructure, which luckily more and more politicians are talking about, and then also thinking about labor policy. So how can we encourage people to be teachers when teaching jobs in the United States pay so poorly, for instance? So sort of a spend more on it. Spend more. Yeah, spend more. Tax people and spend more. Yeah. What about change? Would do you think that would change the culture around these things? Because I mean, I agree. Like, yes, economics would dictate if you offer teachers more money, you'll mm-hmm. get more people who want to be teachers. But you still, I feel, my gut would be that you'd still have this issue of no one is celebrating teachers, yeah, and that the culture is still encouraging everyone to be a Mark Zuckerberg or a Steve Jobs or uh, an Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you still don't have, like, culturally, that's that's not a thrilling thing for people. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can talk about, like, a public information campaign around maintenance, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not sure how much that actually does. I mean, I think ultimately we have to start in the, the organizations we work in, right, and recognizing those people who are doing all the crucial work to just keep – things going around us. I want to go back real quickly because when I was watching your talk and thinking about this idea that this language around innovation kind of shot up around the time productivity started to plateau. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about going back to, you know, say like the inventors like Edison or Tesla or the people who invented the, uh, the steam engine. What were people talking about back then? Were people talking about we need to encourage innovation. Like, what was the culture around Mm-mm. in those eras that got them really excited about inventing? I think they were excited about the technologies themselves. They were enthusiasts, and there was new technology on the scene. It seemed like magic, you know? I mean, the light bulb is a piece of magic. And so they were enthusiasts for that. I don't think anyone had any sense that this was going to necessarily lead to economic growth at that time. That just wasn't a part of the way they were thinking But was there any sort of rhetoric around the cult of invention? Like, when did that spring up? Yeah, so that, you know, it it develops throughout the 20th century. By the 20s and 30s, corporations are creating things like the House of Magic. That was GE. And so you, you started to see more and more encouragement of getting young people to think about technology and engineering. And then, of course, in the 50s, you know, this starts stuff starts to be tied really connect closely with the Cold War and like beating the Russians mm. and things like that. I mean, part of what I, I deal with in my written work is how in the United States, innovation is often tied to uh, fear of other people. Right. Oh. 
So, in, you know, we can think of the Cold War in science and technology and the Russians. But then in the 80s, innovation is really focused on the Japanese as a threat and as an economic threat. And, of course, by the 90s and 2000s, then that switches to the Chinese. And it's all about the United States' place in the global economic system. So despite Silicon Valley's uh, sort of rhetoric about technology bringing everyone together, there's actually a deep-rooted uh, relationship to fear of others. That's quite ironic. So I have a, maybe it's a stupid question, but if we think that part of this problem has to do with the language itself and the use of terms like disruption and innovation... Could we solve the problem by just using other words? Like, instead of technological innovation, could we say something more boring? Like, I don't know, mechanical advancement. Could we call, like, Mark Zuckerberg the, the IT guy that, like, got lucky? Would that work? I mean, that would work for me. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if it would work for others. Um, I mean, you know, think about disruption. So people are still using the word disruption a lot. And yet social scientists over the last couple of years have really undermined Clayton Christensen's notion of disruption and show that it happens far less frequently than he assumed and that it's far less important for the overall economy than he said. And that's not leaking into the broader community of users, right? I've noticed that with um, things like disruption and stuff like that and the disruptive innovation – that the theory that that's an important thing seems to be kind of unfalsifiable right. because every time there's some counterexample, right. you're like, oh, no, you don't really get the theory. That actually – like, I, and so yeah. it's sort of hard to pin down what right. that really means. But if you use his term, I think he had like 90 cases that he thought were case of disruptive innovation. When economists reanalyzed that data, they found that only like seven cases of his 90 cases actually fit. What is it? What is his definition, and why does why do most examples fail to achieve it? I'm not sure in that study what definition they were working mm. with, right? I mean, I think the classic definition is, is the introduction of a new process or technology that undermines a traditional industry. One thing I saw a stat last night, I think it was just on Twitter, and so this is like the worst kind of like <laughs> journalism or punditry because I'm just mindlessly repeating something I saw on Twitter. <laughs> But that something like the percentage of output in the U.S. economy that's done by, like, the top 10 companies is significantly bigger than it was 10 or 20 years ago, that's which sort of undermines this idea that technology is creating this world where the incumbents are always collapsing. Yeah. In fact, you look at the economic landscape, and it seems to be dominated by incumbents that are harder and harder to mm. – uh, removed from their perch or even look at something like uh, a lot of people have talked about this, that if you look at, say, the app store uh, mm -hmm. on your iPhone, the top 25 apps, almost everyone is either from Facebook, Google yeah. or Amazon. There's actually. And most of the apps have like one download or zero. Downloads. Yeah, right. And yeah. there's actually very little churn of who's uh, mm -hmm. who's leading at the very top. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, I think that this that part of what we're trying to do with our maintainers project, we're having the second conference in April at Stevens, is we're just trying to find more realistic and grounded ways of thinking about the economy and technology, right? So the, the kind of factoid you just threw out there is exactly the kind of thing we would point to and say, look at where rhetoric is pushing us 
and in thinking about the economy and then look at how the things are actually playing out on the ground. So in a, in, sort of in conclusion, what do you let's talk about some goals. I mean, you mentioned that, like exploring the gap between our rhetoric and what's actually happening. But what are a few things that you'd like everyone to be thinking about and uh, going forward with this discussion? Because I think, you know, it's, this is so novel, this idea to question the cult of this, that at this point, you just want to have the discussion about it. Yeah. But what are some big things that you'd really like people to be thinking about specifically uh, to reground the discussion in a more product in a productive way? Mm. That's, I mean, so, right. I mean, I think the goal is to get people to think about what technology is and what it, what it's doing in their lives. So most of the technologies around us are very old. You know, we can think of like box fans, which have been around for a century and haven't changed. I assembled a fan uh, the other day, and I was pretty proud of myself because I'm not much of an assembler, but I actually was able. So I just, wanted, I just wanted to get that in there for the record. <laughs> So I think it's about thinking you know, thinking about technology in a grounded way, remember, reminding ourselves what it is, and then reminding ourselves that what most people do in our society is just keep this world going, uh, feeding ourselves, feeding each other, making sure things don't fall down on us. And yes, innovation is important for the technological world around us, but it doesn't play as big of a role as kind of hype mongers want us to believe. Well, uh, Lee Vinsel, uh, professor at the Stevens Institute of Technology, uh, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, thank you for having me. Looking forward to your conferences coming up uh, next spring. Yeah, that's right. What's it called? The Maintainers 2. Great. Well, we'll check it out, and um, maybe we'll uh, maybe I'll come down for it. That sounds and fun. I'll send someone down. And uh, again, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so, Tracy, do you think I uh, totally abused my uh, position <laughs> by having uh, one of my just bringing one of my old middle school friends in? Yeah, nepotism, nepotism right here. No, that that was totally uh, interesting and well worth a discussion. And very, as you said, very, very counterintuitive to the way that most people think about technology. Um, but I expect it, it might not be forever, right? You are seeing more people talking about potential negative effects of rapid technological change, um, its impact on productivity, as you mentioned, and also deflation. So who knows, maybe more people will um, come around to this view in the future. Yeah. And one thing that you, you said is not intuitive, and I agree, but you think back to even the people that we celebrate in sort of the era of innovation, like after the 60s, mm -hmm. when we first started talking about it, I mean, I don't know exactly what was in Mark Zuckerberg's head when he founded Facebook, but I doubt it was him saying, oh, I want to be an innovator and I want to be uh, I want to innovate. It was like, oh, I want to create this cool <laughs> thing to uh, you know, meet people at my college or uh, meet girls. I think it was specifically <laughs> or Steve Jobs wanted to simplify the phone, whatever it is. It just none of these people that we revere as great innovators probably were really excited about innovation itself as a end. It was they were excited about some project they were working on, and they were not the product of oh you know I want to want to be an innovator. I totally agree with that. But do you think like were they excited about being maintainers? Like to use Lee's word, like I don't think that was it either. I think 
we have to find culturally maybe a middle ground between innovation and maintenance. No, I think that's right. They, they, none of those folks seem like they wanted to be uh, maintainers. But it would be nice, uh, as you say, if there if we could have a world for both, where we obviously we celebrate the people who make inventions that change our lives and the sort of the energy that that takes, while also recognizing that most of the good things we have in life are the product of people working tirelessly to maintain our systems in a, in functioning hmm. order. I like that. That's well said. I mean, I will just one last thing. I will say the next time, next time we get a press release that contains both the words innovation and disruption, I'm going to email a link to this podcast. Well, on that note, this has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow Lee at STS underscore news. Thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.